Utterly Moderate is the official podcast of the Connors Forum. Visit us at connorsforum.org and be sure to subscribe to our free email newsletter while you are there. Please listen carefully. 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 Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Utterly Moderate Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Eppard. Back in the fall, we invited our newsletter subscribers to a free live taping of this show where we talked to Bill Kristol about a variety of topics, including the state of the Republican Party and its future, the health of American democracy, and a number of other topics. Because it was a live show, listeners were able to pose questions to Kristol during the show. It was really cool. Subscribe for free to our newsletter in just one click at connorsforum.org. That's C-O-N-N-O-R-S-F-O-R-U-M.org. Make sure you don't miss these opportunities in the future. On today's show, we're going to hear highlights from that conversation for anybody who may have missed it. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Bill Kristol, he has long been considered a heavyweight in the world of conservative politics. He is currently editor-at-large of The Bulwark. Before that, he was founder of the Weekly Standard, served as chief of staff to Education Secretary William Bennett in the Reagan administration, served as chief of staff to Vice President Dan Quayle in the George H.W. Bush administration, and taught politics at both the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard University. Bill Crystal is a friend of this show and frequent guest, and his appearances never disappoint, I promise. I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. Coming up next. Keep rolling along. Deep in my heart is a song. Here on the range I belong. Drifting along with the tumble and tumbleweed. All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, tonight, we're joined by Mr. Bill Crystal to discuss the future of conservative politics in the United States. Bill is editor-at-large at The Bulwark. Before that, he was founder of The Weekly Standard. He served as chief of staff to Education Secretary William Bennett in the Reagan administration, served as chief of staff to Vice President Dan Quayle in the George H.W. Bush administration, and taught politics at both the University of Pennsylvania and Harvard University. Bill, welcome, welcome back to the program. Welcome to uh, virtually to Shippensburg University. It's good to be with you and good to be there virtually. I hope to get there in real life, as they say, when IRL, right? At some, I, at some point. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, we're only going to talk in internet slang tonight. You guys are going to love it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, before we get started, I'll, I'll, a couple of thank yous. Uh, Scott Donald is running the IT for this event. So thank you, Scott, here at Shippensburg. And two of our uh, production and social media assistants at Connors and the Utterly Moderate podcast, Madison Lockman and Allison Ritchie, are also assisting with the event. So thanks to all of you. All right. So, Bill, so first up, uh, the theme of the night, the future of conservative politics. So I think first we should establish what in the heck conservative politics are. So in your opinion, what does it mean to be a conservative? What are the core principles and beliefs from your perspective? 
Usually people say modern American conservatism dates from 1955, the founding of the National Review, Gold War campaign in 64, uh, neoconservatives come on board in the 70s, uh, Reagan runs in 76 and wins in 80. And, you know, so that's kind of the American conservative movement lasts certainly through the Bush presidency um, and into you know Romney, Paul Ryan, and then well, it's a question mark where, where we stand today. But that's a pretty long run. You think about it historically. I mean, I've lived most of those, you know, that's kind of my lifetime. So I, for me, it feels like, well, of course, there's a conservative movement. But uh, no, there wasn't always one. And not every country has a real self-consciously conservative movement. So what did it mean in America? I think it's pretty straightforward, really. I think Reagan would be the simplest way to think about it. Uh, it meant anti-communism, which liberals were for most of that time, mostly, but they faltered at times. And certainly people like me were attracted to the more conservative side of things in the 70s, because we were more confident they really would stand up to the Soviet Union and and stand up for dissidents around the world and so forth. Uh, it meant being preferring markets to heavy government regulation, not no government, but, but you know, thinking that things had gone off the rails with perhaps too much regulation, uh, too high taxes and so forth, and sort of the Reagan Thatcher type economic agenda. And again, many, many gradations of that and many people willing to have a bigger welfare state, some having wanting a smaller one. And then on the social side, which is probably the most complicated, I'd say, a constant, you know, the cultural and constitutional side, some hostility to the courts, making policy hostility or, well, hostility is too strong, but uh, wariness about some of the progressive social causes, more sympathy to traditional institutions, mores, habits, uh, beliefs. Um, that part was always very complex because some of these causes were just undoubtedly and, and, and conservatives were wrong, in my opinion, to resist some of them. And others, they maybe had reason, good reason to resist and others, they had some reason to resist, but maybe could have resisted less as time went on. So that, that I think, has always been the most complicated uh, side of the conservative movement. Now, I was going to say this question for later, but just because you kind of uh, alluded to it in your response, and I'll get to my, my follow-up question in a second, but uh, I should drop this in here. So real quick, given your your long history of really being you know, anti-communism, anti-authoritarian, you know, pro-democracy, what has been your personal reflections on the prospects of social movements right now in places like Iran and China of actually affecting meaningful change? You know, I mean, one, there were different aspects of conservatism. Some of them were kind of friendly to some kinds of dictatorships or semi-dictatorships because they resisted communism, which was the greater threat and not, not a ridiculous point of view in some cases. Other conservatives in here, Reagan was kind of the leader, was, were always more interested in, in promoting democracy abroad and uh, uh, befriending dissidents. And, and under Reagan, you know, uh, even conservative dictatorships moved towards or, uh, democracy and then Reagan ended up helping that movement a little bit. Um, look, I think it's pretty amazing and fantastic what's happened in Ukraine, where you have a, a liberal, liberal, only broad sense of the word, liberal, pro-liberal democracy um, leader uh, standing up and the, Pope, the people rallying behind him against Putin and against a really brutal invasion and standing up for Ukraine. Obviously, it's a national defending the nation, defending their, their, their land, but also defending the values and principles of liberal democracy. And what's happening in Iran, what's happening in China is inspiring. And we've had our problems here in the U.S., in my opinion, in the last several years. And But I, it reminds one, you know, it's sort of a cliche that people laughed at a little bit when Bush would say people all around the world want freedom. And it's too simple and it's complicated and different cultures have different, you know, ways of thinking about freedom. I understand all that. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of truth to that, honestly, that is in the, especially once it's unleashed some places, People look around and say, how about the basic liberties, you know, free speech, freedom of religion, freedom to select our own 
rulers, freedom to vote, you know, uh, freedom of assembly. They obviously can be con constrained in all kinds of ways. And some of these rights run up against other rights. Uh, there are other good things that aren't encompassed by freedom. I also understand that. And that, that's a fair point to make. But I, I myself have just personally been reminded of the of the the case for liberty really and and the power of the appeal of liberty and how impressive it is that these brave men and women all around the world are willing to fight for liberty um so you know we'll talk about what the bulwark is towards the end of the episode and, and direct people there and say join bulwark plus i'm a, I'm a proud bulwark plus member excellent, excellent. <laughs> that's right um and so, uh, but it, but you, you talked about what conservatism means, what the core principles and beliefs are, um, but the bulwark formed as sort of a, you know, um, a, 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 a critique of modern conservatism, or at least of the modern GOP, right? So what are the key ways that you see the GOP um, being misaligned with the core principles and beliefs of conservatism today? I mean, I just think if you're a serious person in terms of thinking about ideas and principles, you you don't pledge allegiance to a party no matter what. You don't pledge allegiance to a movement no matter what. You, you you give it more leeway because it's been the movement you've been part of and you think there are a lot of good people. They can go off the rails a little, but you'll stick with them and help them get back on the rails. That's fine. But you can't give anyone, any movement, any party, any leader, uh, any group of leaders a blank check, I don't think. And so I think Trump really is a... a, a you know, an authoritarian deviation from uh, certainly the best of the conservative movement. There were elements of it there already that he capitalized on, but he took it in a pretty fundamentally different direction, I think. And um, as I say, there were there were there were parts there that we can look back and say, gee, that part he kind of he saw that and he, and he that that was there and he and he capitalized on it. But it's one thing to have a basically healthy movement with some unhealthy elements that's kind of life in a big country right in a big movement you can't really uh, it's hard to crush that stuff you know stomp that out all the time it's a free country but uh anyway so i think we thought trump was fundamentally different we were very disappointed that the republican party went along with trump and first reluctantly and then increasingly enthusiastically and increasingly without dissent and without tolerating dissent uh, and we started the bulwark the weekly standard which was conservative uh i'd find Started it with Ed Barnes and John Bodarts and David Brooks and many others in 1995. Uh, was closed at the end of 2018. And we started the Bulwark as a, the website. It really just on the run almost. I'm just, you know, just saying we should have something in early 2019. And it, it's done well, I've got to say. Jonathan Last and Adam Kuyper have been terrific editors and uh, we've got good writers. It turns out there are people who want to hear sort of centrist some some conservative, some ex-conservative, some liberal uh, voices, all of them committed to the basics of liberal democracy. Uh, a lot of them reflecting on what went wrong and what have we learned? Because, you know, it'd be foolish to go through the last six, seven years, in my opinion, and just kind of say, well, everything I thought was correct. You know, it just happened that everything went off the rails. But I mean, that doesn't make me rethink anything. I, I, I don't, I have respect for people who, who, who have decided, look, basically what they thought in 2014 remains correct. And it's just unfortunate that people have gone away from it. And I, and I think that's a reasonable position. And I have it in many areas too. But in some ways, there's been one thing I think makes the bulwark interesting and lively and and, and makes me you know, look forward to reading it each morning uh, and contributing occasionally is there's a fair amount of rethinking going on. And, and plus, it's just a new world, right? It's 2022. It's not 2015. And things have changed. And how you escape from a sort of 
semi-authoritarian, from the problem of having a semi-authoritarian party with a lot of voters who've been used to demagogic appeals, used to incitements to resentments and playing on anxieties, how you deal with that is different than if that had never happened. So I, I think one thing about the bulwark, and as a way of just answering the broader question, perhaps I hope is, I, I think it's a time for rethinking, you know, it's a time for fresh thinking. Uh, the best political movements and parties have always had a lot of rethinking at different times. They went on a kind of cruised on for 10, 20, 30 years, and then the conditions have changed a lot, and people uh, have tried to figure out how to deal with those new, con- new conditions. Yeah, one of the things, and I'm not going to I'm not going to belabor this, we'll move on, but uh, one of the things that I appreciate about the Bulwark, and I don't agree with everything, you know, I'm, I don't consider myself, um, you know, a tribal Republican or Democrat, but um, one of the things I appreciate, and I, I try to impart to my students a lot in classes, is a lot of publications that used to actually be decent publications are now arguing in bad faith. Uh, and their writers are arguing in bad faith and they're distorting facts. And, you know, you guys post stuff that I might not agree with, um, but I don't see it as bad faith. You know, you're, you're presenting the facts as they are and then prioritizing policies that, you know, you prefer based upon your politics. But um, well, anyway, and I would say, since, I mean, since the students are the main, I guess, focus of this in a way, I, I, you know, I taught for a few, several years. I've gone back and taught uh, sporadically since I left the academy a long time ago now, 35, 40 years ago. But um, yeah, I taught, uh, taught at small colleges and at big universities. And I, I just really would encourage students to try to keep an open mind and learn stuff and not try to sign up for one try. If they want to be in politics, great. If they want to be active Republicans, I campaigned for Scoop Jackson in 1972 when I was at Harvard as a 19-year-old, I guess. So I have no problem with political activism at all. Uh, but but also try to learn stuff, don't you? Because there's something kind of crazy about the assumption that you know everything you need to know about human beings, society, politics, government, history at age 19. There's something a little crazy about thinking you know everything you need to know at age 40 or 50, frankly. And when people say, gee, you seem to have some different attitudes on some issues than you did 15 or 20 years ago, I say, yeah, I think I've learned a little bit. I hope I have. Uh, and conditions have changed also, of course. And and so anyway, I, I think it's I, I'm always pleased when students, you know, when I see students engaged and learning and rethinking and I hope that's, uh, I just encourage everyone to do that. All right. So, um, so, so right now, uh, many on your side of the aisle are arguing that the GOP should move on from Donald Trump to uh, somebody like a Ron DeSantis. And here's a little plug for, uh, for the bulwark. Jonathan Last has an excellent newsletter. He's one of the best writers out there in terms of political commentary. He, he, in his newsletter today, he was quoting some uh, Quinnipiac and, and Emerson polls, and uh, it was actually kind of shocking. Uh, I, I didn't realize the amount of support that Trump had over DeSantis. So younger voters, younger Republican voters uh, prefer Trump over DeSantis 67 to 14. Voters 50 to 64 prefer him 54 to 32 percent. And those over 65, 39 to 32 percent. And uh, Jonathan last notes in his newsletter today that the voters believe that Trump was a good president, that he was unfairly cheated out of the 2020 election, and that any efforts to investigate him are unjust persecution. So given that context, um, I mean, presumably, you know, things could change radically, obviously, uh, between now and the primaries. But uh, presumably, these people are going to vote in the primaries, and they're going to vote based upon the numbers we just talked about, and they're going to reject DeSantis. So how do you move on? I mean, many elites are saying there, there's endless ink being spilled about moving on, right? How do you do it with those numbers? I mean, there are, to be fair, I, 
I, I liked a piece by Jonathan. And I think it was very important for him to lean against the assumption of everyone that it's easy to it'll be easy to move on. Some elites have decided they'd like to move on. That Trump is an electoral burden to the party, or they didn't find it distasteful when he meets with some neo-Nazi at Mar-a-Lago. But you know, they they so they've just decided they like DeSantis. He seems to be popular in Florida. He went by twenty points. He is popular in Florida. Uh, and he gives them a lot of the policies they like and a certain amount of Trump's ability to whip up people against the left and so forth without some of the worst aspects of Trump. I mean, so leaving my views aside, because I'm not really, you know, pro DeSantis either, but um, I don't think I, I think it's it could be competitive. I mean, we don't know. It's, we just never had. I did a conversation with Whit Ayers today, who's a veteran GOP uh, Republican strategist and pollster, very intelligent, thoughtful, actually was a professor of uh, political science before he got into government and politics. Um, and so thinks about it in a little more detached way. And as he said, we just we just don't know. We can all have models of how these things have worked in the past, different races, uh, you know, being a governor of a big state with a big vote against someone who's been around longer. How do you how, how does that play out? But we've never had an ex-president who won in 2016, lost, lost as president, now running again, that hasn't happened since what Grover Cleveland, I don't think really, at least running as a serious candidate. And to say nothing of someone like Trump with all the, you know, everything he's done and said and and uh, January 6th and all this. So I'm, I think people are too confident. If you're a Republican-ish type, a conservative type who wants to continue to believe in the Republican Party and the conservative movement, which I'm less there, but I have many, not many people who are, of course. Um, you really want to believe that it's going to be easy to kind of just move on from Trump without really confronting him. Because if you confront him, that all of his supporters get angry, and then you're in a civil war, and then they don't. Then you're then you're Mike Pence or or uh, uh, Governor Kemp of Georgia, and then you're unacceptable to the Trump people. DeSantis is navigating, you know, not really confronting Trump, but not quite endorsing the worst of Trump. Uh, I think Jonathan's point is: don't be too confident that that's an easy thing to pull off. A, there's just a lot of support for Trump himself. I mean, a friend of mine put it this way, a historian, he said, if you look at history, the original demagogue it holds the support for a long time. I mean, people got into this particular movement because of Trump. They got into the kind of this certain the aspects that I don't like, but I mean, the, the aspects that are so different from traditional republicanism because of Trump. And they voted for him twice. And they voted for candidates he endorsed Medi tie in 2018, 2020, 2022. Some of those candidates lost. They, 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 you know, the, the the election deniers couldn't get majorities, but you know, they won Republican primaries and they got a lot of votes. I mean, Carrie Lake lost by 17,000 votes in Arizona, but she got 49% of the votes. So it's not nothing, you know. And so I think Jonathan's kind of common sense point is I don't know if you voted for Trump twice for Carrie Lake. Why exactly don't you just vote for Trump again and think he's probably, you know, Biden's going to be kind of a weaker candidate and we have a better chance next time. And Trump's proven that he's a pretty good candidate uh, in a way when, you know, when the, when the crunch comes. And so I think that's his point. The, the counter argument would be, you know, Republicans have sort of lost the last three elections, 2018, the off year. They lost the House, 2020. Uh, they lost the presidency, of course, and both houses. 2022, they only went back to House more narrowly than they expected and didn't win back the Senate. So, uh, you know, how do voters vote because DeSantis is a better candidate than Trump? That's, I think, the big question. I mean, I think Jonathan's implicit point is you sort of have to confront Trump at some point. You can't just pretend, well, this was kind of a weird thing for a few years here and it's good things and bad things. But let's just move on. Now, sometimes in life you can move on. I mean, we've all had this experience in relationships and in 
jobs and, and everything, right? You know, you just sort of, okay, well, that was whatever. I don't even want to confront it. I don't want to think too hard about it. I don't want to like resolve everything. I just want to, we'll just leave it the way it was. Maybe, I don't know, can a whole nation, can a whole party do that when Donald Trump's been so unusual when you had January 6th, when you have these trials going on, when he takes classified documents to Mar-a-Lago, he'll probably be indicted. I, I think it's going to be a little harder to move on. I think the party will have to do a little more, I think it's Jonathan's point in a way, to, to make up its mind about Trump. And when it's been asked to make up its mind about Trump ever since 2016, it's made up its mind on Trump's side, basically, even after January 6th. I think that's that's where Trump shouldn't be underestimated. Unfortunately, I would be thrilled if it would, if and I would support, incidentally, it'd be better for the country if DeSantis were the nominee, in my opinion, than Trump, even though I'm not a big fan of DeSantis. Just, it would help break the, you know, uh, the spell a little bit. Uh, but um, one shouldn't just be, we're not out of the woods by any means. One I should note for anybody who's not a, a Bulwark Plus member and you don't, you don't uh, read the Bulwark, uh, you know, Jonathan's extremely smart. He's a great writer. Uh, he's just great at everything that he does. But I think the reason why I love him so much more than any of that is that, like me, he's an extreme pessimist. So yeah. uh, that is the pessimist take, you know. <laughs> Dark, he's got but incidentally, Bower Plus, you pay a little bit and you can join, you get more podcasts and newsletters, but most of the material is available for free. So people should just go to Bulwark, thebulwark.com and sample it and make up their, you know, beat some stuff for free. And then if they want to do a little more and they can, of course, welcome them into Bulwark Plus. So that's my, that's my pitch. I'll stop with that. And yeah, there you're back good. to our discussion here. Well, like you said, I mean, the, like the newsletter, you get it in advance if you're a Bulwark Plus member, but right. it eventually goes on the website like the next day or whatever. But anyway, so, uh, so let's talk, you, you brought him up. Let's talk about DeSantis. So um, you know, you've been highly critical of Trump for a variety of things, obviously, chief among them, his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And, you know, you and your colleagues at the Bulwark for a long time, you've been talking about wanting to get back to normal, boring politics where we're just yeah. debating policies. Right. And it's not info, you know, it's not, it's not entertainment. Um, we're not debating the existence of the Republic or threatening it, uh, you know, uh, violating democratic norms. Um, so in your view, so do you not like DeSantis because you don't agree with his policies or do you think that he's more of Trumpism? What's your take? Yeah, I think he's, 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 his path of success has been to imitate Trump in a lot of ways and, you know, flying immigrants who don't quite know what's happening to them off to Martha's Vineyard to make some point about I'm tough. You know, I'm not letting these people just live here in Florida. Actually, they were in Texas. I think some of them, right? And it's kind of, it's just, it's terrible. I mean, it's taking advantage of human beings who are here and it's, you know, you've got different views on the border and how we should handle immigrants and so forth. But it's just something, uh, the cruelty of Trumpism, I think, to Santos enjoys uh, making a spectacle of I'm going after these teachers who were allegedly teaching this terrible stuff. And then it turns out maybe there aren't really many of them teaching that. And, and there are ways to, you know, legally and properly to have hearings and change curricula in public schools, if that's what you want to do. But demagoguing about it. I mean, I, I do think he's I, he has a lot of the distasteful aspects of Trumpism. But he hasn't gone as far as Trump. He isn't really an election denier. In some ways, he's been a pretty good governor, uh, I think, or at least a you know a responsible governor. Um, so I, you know, I have a mixed view about it. I have a mixed view about a lot of other politicians too. And so, I, but it would be nice to get back to debating uh, yeah, tax rates and welfare policy and and so forth. But I don't think it's going to happen very quickly. I mean, I think this is one point I might have thought three, four years ago. I mean, at one point, it seemed possible to me that Trump could be win. He wanted to win the presidency. He's a demagogue. He'll do damage as president, I thought. And I was right about that, I think. that You know, you have a demagogue as president for four years. That's something we really haven't had in America. And you got plenty of demagogues. 
But a demagogue, as governor, a demagogue as a sectional leader, you know, George Wallace type, a demagogue as a senator, Joe McCarthy, it can do a lot of damage, but it's limited ultimately. And usually it can be contained and then fades away. And, you know, it gets kind of swamped by the bigger picture of of, na of national politics. Uh, when you have a president who's purposely stirring up resentments and telling lies and now saying that the election system is rigged and, and then basically inciting a riot on January 6th and then basically lying about that and, and, uh, uh, and, you know, not, and then encouraging everyone else to sort of become a big election uh, denier um, and, and helping those people win primaries. That's a pretty, that's very unusual in America. And I do think it's, it's, uh, it, it means that we can't just move beyond Trump. The move beyond scenario would have worked if Trump became president, the Republicans on the Hill said, Great, you're president, Mr. President. We want to hear your proposals, but yeah, you know, we have our responsibilities in Congress to do things as we see fit. And they didn't become subservient to Trump, and they checked Trump, and they argued with Trump, and they made clear there was a whole Republican Party out there that wasn't just Trump's. And you can imagine a scenario. This sometimes happens, like at the state level, where Trump is a fairly ineffective, maybe president. Uh, gets some legislation passed where the Republicans agree with him, but is kind of you know, doesn't have a whole party mobilized behind it and doesn't change the character of the party. And I think it's what's been so impressive in a way, you've got to say about Trump. How many other people have done this? How many other people lost the presidency and two years later are first or tied for first in polls for being the nominee again and who managed to elect to take nobodies and make them this candidate of their party? And in some cases, make help them win. In some cases, he hurt them. But, you know, there are a lot of people who owe their political career to Trump. And there's now a big infrastructure. Todd Tim Miller wrote this in the bill, bill work on the MAGA establishment. I think it's a very important point that liberals still tend to think, well, there's these liberal, liberal establishment, of course, the foundations, the universities, all these big, big players. Uh, and then there are these insurgent conservatives, very bad. They don't like Trump, of course. But, you know, it's kind of a few hot ha hotheads. And unfortunately, Trump became president. But they don't understand how much of an infrastructure in this respect, Trump didn't really, I don't think, plan this, but he somehow saw this. He helped. He did see enough to see that this was in his interest and others around him really did make this happen. They built up a big infrastructure that is not friendly, in my view, to civil discourse, liberal democracy, tolerance, you know, down, dampening down tensions and anxieties instead of just whipping them up at every at every uh, opportunity. And that thing isn't hasn't gone away. In fact, it's pretty massive now. And we can look at Nick Fuentes, a neo-Nazi that um, uh, Trump entertained in Mar-a-Lago and say, what a lunatic. But, you know, and he is. And he yeah, doesn't have a huge number of supporters, but he has some. He has an institution. He has a conference and members of conference, members of Congress go to it. And, and then he comes with a very famous, you know, entertainer to Mar-a-Lago to dinner with the ex-president of the United States. I mean, you know, these things can, one thing we've learned over the last six years is, is these things that look fringy can become mainstream pretty fast. And so I think that is the real danger of Trump and Trumpism. And, and the danger isn't over. Yeah. And for anybody who hasn't been following, uh, Nick Fuentes is not, uh, we're not using hyperbole when we call him a Nazi, like the dude's a legit Nazi. Uh, yeah. He said recently on one of his uh, podcasts or whatever that, um, you know, the American public doesn't believe what I believe anymore. So we need a dictatorship to force them to believe what we believe. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, all right. So I see uh, there's some questions in the chat window. I'm definitely going to get there. If you want to ask some questions, we want to ask as many audience questions as possible. So put those in the q and I have a few more I'm going to I'm going to talk to Bill about and then we'll we'll get to as many audience questions as we can. But um, so let's let's talk about um, you said 
we talked about sort of getting back to boring politics and you in your answer there said i don't see it happening so you know many republicans ran on things like you know inflation um crime uh immigration um so do you think that's going to be you know when when they come into power and in, in, in the new congress that's going to be what they're going to focus on or do you think it's not going to be boring politics like that yeah and I, I mean i'd say boring is i've well, use that term and half jokingly, but you know, it's not boring to defeat the Soviet Union and to help the Iranian dissidents. So, and it's not boring to pass the rights legislation in the US and to make New York City, where I am right now, uh, you know, help it revive and, and tons of people come here and enjoy living here. And, you know, and the businesses now flourish here, which didn't. So, I mean, so well, I, guess what I, I guess what I would ask you is, you know, are we going to get like wonky correcting my own use of the term boring in the past? Anyway, to say that uh, it's pretty, you know, interesting politics in a way and important politics. And that's what people and I, I like politics. And so um, but. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know what the, so the Republican House. Let's see. I mean, I would be impressed and pleased if they pass a serious, well thought out, you know, anti-crime legislation. I'm not sure what the right answers are to the ups, somewhat of an upsurge in crime over the last two, three, four years. And do we need more police? Do we need better trained police? What's the federal role? These are not easy questions, but there may be there are things probably that should be done. And same with I mean, the immigration is a very complicated, difficult question. I mean, most of what Republicans have, and inflation is very hard for one House of Congress to do anything about. And I'm sure how much, you know, if it's Biden and how much of it is global and post pandemic and so forth. So the way in which they've addressed those uh, uh, issues has been pretty, pretty simplistic and pretty demagogic. Now, that's always the case to some degree. So I don't want to make it seem like, oh, they should be having, you know, putting out 47 page analyses of comparative crime rates in four different cities and what kinds of policing necessarily works. I mean, others should be doing that. Think tanks should be. In the old days, some of that informed the legislation, even if the members of Congress themselves couldn't really explain it. The staff knew about it. What's striking at the Trump era is none of that matters at all. You know, you just it's just kind of it's just let's, you know, let's publicize some crime or some or some border crossing and, and scream and yell about that. And not only scream and yell and not only embrace simplistic policies. I think that a lot of that's happened in the past and will always happen in uh, politics, big democratic politics or any politics, I guess. Um, what's most striking about the Trump era for me and most distasteful, though, is the you don't just say they misunderstood the situation at the border. They've let it get out of control. They really need to rethink everything. It's they want what's happening to happen. They want to replace white Americans with other Americans. They like the criminals. I mean, the rhetoric that Trump routinely uses, I remember being so shocked six years ago, seven years ago, we started to use it thinking, this is so, I, mean, I was a pretty strong conservative and we thought Carter had been very weak in certain respects. And David Dinkins was a bad mayor of New York. He didn't understand how important public safety was. And he didn't, uh, you know, he didn't understand that that meant more police and so forth. But we thought he didn't understand certain things. We didn't think he liked criminals. We didn't think he was rooting for the criminals. We didn't think Jimmy Carter was rooting for, you know, uh, Americans to be held hostage by by the Iranian, the Iranian government. But that is the tone very much of some on the left these days, but not that. It's always been a little bit of that on the left, these greedy capitalists. They're not just greedy, you know, they're not just sort of capitalists. They they love oppressing the, the poor workers, but but we've avoided that mostly in, in the U.S. or, or only had a little bit of it. And uh, what we have, uh, uh, but on the right now, that's just routine. I mean, I'd say even people I know, sort of decent members of Congress, just routinely use that kind of 
a talk when they're talking about Joe Biden or about, you know, the Secretary of Homeland Security or whatever. That's extremely damaging in a, in a liberal democracy. It's extremely damaging in a country, in a society. You know, it's one thing to think your colleagues are mis, you know, if you're teaching there, your colleagues are mis, mis, mistaken about certain things. Some of them would be better teachers if they did other things. Some of them would be, you know, understand some issue better if they thought, if they read different books and thought about them differently. It's another thing to sort of say they don't want, you know, to, 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 to learn anything. They don't want students to do well. They don't care about discovering the truth. They're purposely, uh, pursuing policies that hurt Americans. And that is the rhetoric of Fox now and of Tucker Carlson and of Trump and of a lot of the, and to some degree of a DeSantis, right? And so the, I mean, it, and that's very, that is bad. And that's hard to get back in, hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube, you know, once it's unleashed. Yeah. You know, when I, when I talk to my students about this, you know, when, when someone says, um, you know, I disagree with your policy about LGBTQ issues or whatever. Therefore, you're a groomer and you're a pedophile because we disagree about policies. Yeah. You know, I talk to my students about that and I say, you realize that's far beyond the pale, right? They do, but they do realize that the, the depressing thing though, and Madison can attest to this, is that they're this is what they're used to. Like this is what politics in the US is to them. They're all born this century. Now, that is a very important point. I mean, this is also why I think it's hard to, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's one thing if you, if people like me, it's sort of like, this is a weird aberration, but it's been going on a long time now. So if you're a 20 year old college student, Trump became president in 2017. So what, six, six full years. So basically we started paying attention when you were 13 or 14. That's kind of what you've seen. And some of the reactions been a little overheated too, obviously. So yeah, you don't really, you have to read history, I think, to understand that we don't need to have a look at other countries to some degree. And we don't have to have a politics that is this mean-spirited and cruel. I think the cruelty is the point, uh, you know, when journalist Adam Serra wrote in 2018 about Trump. And I think there is some truth to that. I've got to say he unleashed a lot of cruelty that people have had in their hearts in a way, right? You know, there's always been a little bit of bully in everyone, I suppose, and a little bit of enjoying, humiliating your your opponents, not just defeating them or not just uh, out-arguing them. And we've, I'm sure we're all susceptible to that a little bit. But, you know, it's in a civilized society, that's kind of kept within bounds, right? Occasionally, some team, you'll spike the ball in the end zone and really show up the other team. But most of the time, you try to win the game and then shake hands and say, you know, good effort. And uh, I don't want to overdo the kind of civility stuff and the politeness stuff. Obviously, that, you know, it's, it's, it's politics is a rough sport. But uh, if you want to use to do the sport analogy, but the degree to which it's just gone so far over the top and so routine and, and is hurting people. Is, damaging people's character, in my opinion. I mean, it really is making these people themselves worse people, at least temporarily, because of the stuff that's been unleashed. Yeah, I can't, you know, if if if, uh, if somebody had gone on any one of the networks, you know, left of center, right of center in the 1990s and said, um, you know, the helicopters have come home from Afghanistan and they're rounding up conservatives and putting them in Guantanamo Bay, you'd say, okay, this person can't be on the news channel anymore. But that's just, that's just normal. Um, let's move on. So, uh, Frederick Charles in the chat, he asks, um, so you know, there's, there's a variety of investigations going on. One, of course, is about uh, the insurrection, whether Trump incited it. There's also, of course, the uh, overturning, uh, attempting to overturn the 2020 election. There's also the Mar-a-Lago uh, documents case. So, you know, Frederick wants to know, uh, in your opinion, do you believe that he's going to be indicted for one of these crimes? You know, I, I sort of didn't until the few months ago. And I really, the documents thing is, is such a clear cut crime in my view. And I worked in the government. I was in the white house and the George H. W. Bush administration. And 
chief of staff to the vice president I had access to a lot of these very classified documents and the, the care with which people we tried to take about them the idea that you just walk out with some of them you'd leave them in some storeroom there um i, I just you'd lie about it frankly and, and try to then you know pretend you didn't do anything wrong or pretend you had a right to it or you declassified them magically it's it's awfully bad behavior now ultimately does he get indicted for that does he get indicted for january 6 i don't know i mean i but i think it's more likely now than I would have thought a few months ago, maybe a little better than 50-50. What then happens is very hard to tell. I mean, do we get to trials? Does he get convicted? Does he get acquitted? Are there hung juries? I mean, is there, you know, are 12 people going to convict? Uh, they're all going to be willing to convict Trump? I mean, so and we haven't really gone through this either. I mean, one of the best things about America has been peaceful transfer of power and not too much looking back. I mean, even when people behave badly, you know, you sort of let's move on, move on, which is healthy on the whole. You don't want every administration coming in and prosecuting the previous one. Right. That's the worst kind of aspect of a unstable, a vindictive democracy where people then decide I can't afford to lose an election. So I'll be prosecuted. So we haven't had that on the whole. There are instances where you could are you got over that line, but pretty rarely, actually, it's been pretty much of a norm. And now with Trump, I mean, on the one hand, you don't want to establish that precedent. Uh, even though Trump himself calls for it all the time in terms of prosecuting Hillary Clinton and so forth. Uh, on the other hand, um, if you don't establish, if you're not willing to prosecute him, you're just letting uh, crime be unpunished, which is a very bad thing in and of itself and a very bad message to send people. So I don't, you know, in a way, Nixon was punished. Uh, he was punished under the aegis of the Justice Department that was uh, run by a republic, by his vice president, by Gerald Ford. So in a way that you could avoid the partisanship, that in, in retrospect, that was kind of an important part of Watergate. I think that a lot of the trials and stuff happened uh, while Ford was president. So you didn't feel that it was, you know, the Democrats weren't getting back at Nixon exactly. Um, and uh, that they could argue. And I think Biden's been very careful and Merrick Garland has been judicious, but they'll, the, Republicans will certainly argue all of them, DeSantis, Kevin McCarthy, all of them will rally to Trump if he's indicted, that it's an outrage. And that's bad. And so, so it's bad both ways. I think at the end of the day, you do have to uphold the rule of law. So I, I'm sort of assuming that the facts are there and I none of us knows exactly, but I, I'm not in favor of pulling punches really on the indictments. And I will say, I think it's important generally to hold people accountable. I mean, that's just one of the things that's really, if people break the law, they need to, not every single person needs to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. You can have mercy and you can have a certain amount of judgment, of course, and discretion. But it's important for people to think that the law matters, you know, and Trump was so dismissive of the law in so many different ways. Uh, and he was impeached twice for that reason. Uh, but the idea that he and all of his top people really aren't going to pay much of a price for that. I think it just encourages a lot of people, younger people, too, to think, OK, I guess that's the game. You know, I guess we just get away with absolutely anything we can. And it's and and and, and probably can get away with it. You know, if Trump gets away with it, you know, and I get the, I get the argument that that's the clearest cut case. Um, but when when the phone call with Raffensperger came out, um, it was I think it was released by The Washington Post. <clears throat> I, I sat down and I listened to the whole thing. And I would encourage everybody here to go listen to that. It's on YouTube. The call with uh, former President Trump to Raffensperger. I think McCarthy was on that. And it was not McCarthy. It was uh, Chief of Staff uh, Meadows. I think Meadows on the call. Yeah, uh, a variety of other people. Um, and you know, go listen to it. And if you're a conservative, just imagine that's Joe Biden, right? Imagine somebody you don't like, right? And and they're arguing for the overturning. I mean, to me, there must be something I'm missing because I get that the documents case is bad. And and 
talking to people like you and Tom Nichols and a variety of other people who are in government tell me like, it's way worse. Like you do not do this. I get it. And it's clear cut. He, he violated the law, but existentially in terms of like the Republic, the existence of the Republic, that call to me just screams illegal. He's attempt. he's asking an election official, give me just enough votes to win. I don't care where they come from. All right, let's take a quick time out and remind you about that Raffensperger phone call. For anybody who's forgotten, play you a few clips from that phone call. Former President Trump legitimately lost the 2020 presidential election to Joe Biden. Numerous investigations have shown this to be the case and have not found widespread fraud. Regardless of this reality, the former president and his people set about on an intense pressure campaign in the aftermath of the election on local, state, and federal officials to try to get them to improperly overturn the election. One such pressure campaign was caught on tape. On January 2nd, 2021, the former president, his chief of staff, and others on his team called the Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to attempt to overturn the election results in Georgia by changing the vote totals. Legal scholars have described this as a flagrant abuse of power and an attack on American democracy, and I think they're correct. The entire call is available to listen to for yourself online, but we'll play you a few clips here. Uh, Go check out our newsletter at connorsforum.org if you want to listen to the whole thing unedited. We provide a link in the newsletter article about this episode. So the margin of victory for Biden in Georgia was 11,779 votes. And again, there's no proof of widespread fraud. The call begins with Chief of Staff Mark Meadows introducing everybody on the call, including former President Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. So, Mr. President, everybody is on the line. And just so this is Mark Meadows, the Chief of Staff, just so we all are aware, um, uh, on the line is Secretary of State uh, and uh, two other individuals, uh, Jordan and Mr. Germany. Uh, with him, you also have uh, the attorneys that represent uh, the President, uh, Kurt and Alex and Cleta Mitchell, uh, who is not the attorney of record, but uh, has been involved, myself, and then uh, the president. So, Mr. President, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Okay, thank you very much. Hello, Brad and Ryan and everybody. We appreciate the time and the call. Um, so, we've spent a lot of time on this, and uh, if we could just go over some of the numbers, I think it's pretty clear that we won. We won very substantially, uh, Georgia. Uh, you even see it by rally size, frankly. We'd be getting 25, 30,000 people a rally, and uh, the competition would get less than 100 people, and it never made sense. As the Washington Post notes in describing the call, quote, Trump alternately berated Raffensperger, tried to flatter him, begged him to act, and threatened him. During their conversation, Trump issued a vague threat to both Raffensperger and Ryan Germany, the Secretary of State's general counsel, suggesting that if they don't find that thousands of ballots in Fulton County have been illegally destroyed to block investigators, an allegation for which there is no evidence, they would be subject to criminal liability. Throughout the call, Raffensperger and his office's general counsel rejected Trump's assertions, explaining that the president is relying on debunked conspiracy theories and that President-elect Joe Biden's 11,779-vote victory in Georgia was fair and accurate, end quote. Trump repeats a fire hose of lies during the call and repeats many of these lies multiple times, 
Despite the fact that his claims have been investigated and been disproved, Trump claims that the company that produces the voting machines is part of a large election conspiracy, that thousands of dead people voted, that an Atlanta election worker scanned thousands of Biden ballots multiple times, that out-of-state voters came back to Georgia to vote illegally in this election. He also accuses uh, some of ballot destruction. Like the investigators who have investigated these things and found no evidence, Raffensberger confirms on the call that these things are not true. At one point, Trump asks Raffensberger not to make sure the election is completely accurate, but just to change enough votes so that Trump can win. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have. Here is one of Raffensberger's responses to just minutes of meandering election lies from Trump. Well, uh, I've listened to what you know, the president has just said. President Trump, uh, we've had several lawsuits and we've had to respond in court to the lawsuits and the contentions. Um, we don't agree that you have one. We don't, we, I didn't agree about the 200,000 number that you'd mentioned. And I could go through that point by point. What we had done is we gave our state Senate uh, about one and a half hours of, of our time going through the election issue by issue. And then on the state house, uh, the government affairs committee, we gave them about two and a half hours of our time going back point by point on all the issues of the contention. And then uh, just a few days ago, we met with uh, our U.S. congressman, Republican congressman, uh, and we gave them about two hours of our time uh, talking about this past election. Uh, going back, primarily what, you're, what you've talked about here focused in on primarily, I believe, is the absentee ballot process. I don't believe that you're really questioning the, uh, the, the Dominion machines because we did a hand retally, a 100% retally of all the ballots and compared that to what the machine said and, and it came up with virtually the same result. Then we did the recount, we got virtually the same result. So I, I guess we could probably take that off the table. I don't think there's an issue about that. Here's another response from Raffensberger again, after a meandering list of lies from the former president. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Uh, we, we talked to the congressmen and they were surprised, but they, uh, I guess there was a person named Mr. Raynard that came to these meetings and presented data. And he said that there was dead people, I believe it was upward of 5,000. The actual number were two, two, two people that were dead that voted. The following is a response from general counsel, Ryan Germany. We, what, what we're saying is not at all what you're describing. Okay. Uh, and it, these are investigators from our office. These are investigators from uh, GBI. Um, and they're looking and they're good. And that's not what they're seeing. When Trump claims that some Biden ballots were scanned multiple times and saying things like, you know, people are saying on the Internet, Raffensberger responds. They did not put that. We we can we did an audit of that and we proved conclusively that they were not scanned three times. Later, his general counsel, Ryan Germany, chimes in. We had our this is Ryan Germany. We had our law enforcement officers talk to everyone uh, who was who was there after that event came to light. Uh, the GBI was with them as well as um, FBI agents. Um, well, there's there's no way they could. Then they're incompetent. 
They're either dishonest well, they or find? incompetent, okay? There's only two answers, dishonesty or incompetence. There's just no way. Look, there's no way. Like many of these lies, Trump repeats this multiple times throughout the call. Every single ballot that she did through the machine at uh, early, early in the morning went to Biden. Did you know that, Ryan? Um, that's not accurate, Mr. President. Huh? What is accurate? The, the numbers that we are showing are accurate. Here is Raffensperger responding to Trump and his lawyer's false claim about out-of-state voters. Point we are going through each of those as well, and, and, and those numbers that, that we got um, that Ms. Mitchell was just saying, they're not accurate. Everyone we've been through are people that lived in Georgia, moved to a different state, but then moved back to Georgia legitimately. And in, in many cases... Really, how many people do that? So I mean, they moved out and then they said, how the hell with it, I'll move back. And, you know, it doesn't sound like... A very normal. You mean they moved out and what? They missed it so much that they wanted to move back in. <laughs> it's like it's crazy. Well, and they this is they moved back in years ago. This was not like something just before the election. So there's something about that data. that It's just not accurate. Well, I don't know. We, I mean, the following is an exchange about incorrect claims about ballot shredding and a conspiracy concerning Dominion voting machines. Do you think it's possible that they uh, shredded ballots in uh, Fulton County? Because that's what the rumor is. And also that Dominion took out machines. Uh, that Dominion is really moving fast to get rid of their uh, machinery. Do you know anything about that? Because that's illegal. This is Ryan Germany. No, Dominion is not. Um, moved any machinery out of Fulton County. We're having. Well, but no, but, but have they moved? Have they? Have they moved the inner parts of the machines and replaced them with other parts? No. You sure, Ryan? I'm sure. I'm sure, Mr. President. And what about what about the uh, what about the ballots? The uh, shredding of the ballots. Have they been shredding ballots? No. The, the only investigation that we have into that, they have not been shredding any ballots. Um, there was an issue in Cobb County where they were doing normal. Uh, you know, office shredding, getting rid of old stuff. And we investigated that. And this is stuff from, you know, past elections. No, I don't know. Uh, and, and that's, and that's what very, it, 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 it doesn't pass the smell test, though, because we hear they're shredding thousands and thousands of ballots. Uh, and now what they're saying, oh, we're just cleaning up the office. You know, I don't think that plays. Well, Mr. President, the problem uh, you have with social media, they can, people can say anything. No, I, no, this isn't social media. This is Trump media. It's not social media. It's, it's, it's really not. It's not social media. I don't care about social media. I couldn't care less. Social media is big tech. Big tech is on your side, you know. I don't even know why you have a side, because you should want to have an accurate election. And you're a Republican. We believe that we do have an accurate election. No, I no, you don't. No, no, you don't. You don't have, you don't have, not even close. Later, Trump responds. But they are shredding ballots, in my opinion, based on what I've heard. And they are removing machinery uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can. Both of which are criminal fines and you can't let it happen. And you are letting it happen. You know, I mean, I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. Throughout the call, Trump claims to have won Georgia by hundreds of thousands of votes. 
I won this election by hundreds of thousands of votes. There's no way I lost Georgia. There's no way. We won by hundreds of thousands of votes. In fact, as the call goes on, the number of votes Trump claims to have won by actually changes at sometimes a couple hundred thousand, sometimes half a million. And the the real truth is I won by 400,000 votes, at least. That's the real truth. What's the difference between winning the election by two two votes and winning it by a half a million votes? I think we probably did win it by a half a million. Clearly, Trump believes that his efforts to overturn the election will succeed not only in Georgia, but other states as well. I mean, there's turmoil in Georgia and other places. You're not the only one. I mean, we have uh, other states that I believe will be flipping to us very shortly. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Bill Crystal. Existentially, in terms of like the, Repub- the existence of the Republic, that call to me just screams illegal. He's attempt- He's asking an election official, give me just enough votes to win. I don't care where they come from. Just give them to me. And that- yeah, I, look, I agree with that. I, so I, I would modify what I said to say that, I mean, if he's, again, we don't know, but that's a harder case in some ways to overturning the election. The statutes you would use are a little less clear cut maybe, but I, 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 I agree. And I mean, it should be, that's why they were right to impeach him. And it was one of the really terrible things was the failure of Republicans to go ahead and impeach him at the very end of his presidency or even after his presidency. I mean, that would have been a very important symbol. I don't think we would then be that concerned about the prosecution. But that was that was literally that is exactly what you want to impeach people for. And of course, it wasn't just some disgruntled candidate calling up the secretary of state saying, hey, I think something went wrong here. You know, you should take a look. OK, some guy running for county commissioner somewhere doesn't understand how it works and is venting. He was the president of the United States. I believe that call was placed from the White House. So we're really in a different world when that call gets gets normalized. I mean, he literally and again, you guys go listen to it yourselves and, and see if I'm exaggerating. But it was basically like, give me an, whatever the gap was between me yeah, 11,000 something. Give, votes, yeah. give me those plus one. Just find those plus one. <laughs> it was like, it was crazy. All right, let's move on. So um, it's hard to go a week without a mass shooting in the U.S. Um, we had uh, we had a, a, a gun violence expert on the program recently. I had I had held off on doing a gun violence episode for a long time because so many people who study gun violence are very partisan. They come at it from gun laws don't work and they're going to that's going to color their findings or they come at it from, you know, government's the answer. It's hard to find somebody who really does a nonpartisan. I talked to somebody in epidemiology, though, uh, and, and he really focused on experiments, you know, real world experiments of, of legislation and the basic impression I got was, you know, the problem is too many guns. We have 40, million guns. And the question is, how do you keep them out of the hands of bad people? Right. And we're not going to confiscate them. We're not going to do mandatory buybacks like Australia. But he mentioned a few that the research shows do work. He talks about red flag laws um, and you have to have good data reporting on that. Right. So when people uh, background check, same thing, you got to have good dating reporter data reporting waiting periods, you know, all these things are popular, both with Republicans and Democrats. Um, but I'll ask you, obviously, the, the the biggest resistance you get is from Republicans on these. So what is it about red flag laws, background checks and waiting periods that you think violates conservatism or or if you don't think it does, that, that people are arguing violates conservatism? No, it doesn't at all. It violates a very extreme version of the Second Amendment or an extreme version of just gun rights. And, you know, some of these laws might be ill-advised. Could they, can in any instance, a red flag law 
flag someone who doesn't deserve to be flagged and stop someone from getting a gun, at least for a while, until he has to appeal. Should they have appeals and other things built into them? Sure. But I mean, when you get on an airplane, you you know, you could be flagged for you could be on a list that you shouldn't be on and or your name looks like someone else's name and you get confused and you have, you know, your stuff gets searched or you get stopped for an hour or two. I mean, uh but the, the the gun thing is interesting. So when I studied a little bit in the 70s and 80s in grad school, and as a, uh, James P. Wilson was one of my professors. He wrote a lot about, a fair amount about this. Uh, and he was skeptical of a lot of the gun control laws, but he also didn't think that we, we should fetishize gun ownership and that we should make it you know not easy, not just to have some hunting rifles, not to have, not easy, not only easy to have a pistol in self-defense or a rifle if you want, uh, but to have you know, semi-automatic weapons, and I know we can get into endless disputes, and I'm not a gun owner, so I'm not terribly literate about this, different kinds of weapons, but make it easier and easier for more and more people to have more and more guns in more and more places without any constraints, without any required training, without any background checks, without any limitations on how many bullets they can shoot or how quickly and so forth. And then with the open carry stuff, you're really inviting violence you're invited i mean when people show up at a rally well this, this is an open carry state i'm gonna i'm carrying guns and not just you know maybe a one handgun you know in case you have to defend yourself if things go crazy but a big you know an ar-15 and then someone else's and the other guys are carrying guns I and mean, then you really are looking like a country that's spiraling out of control and you are a country that's spiraling out of control if you saw this that footage of some of these mobs with guns in other countries for other countries you'd say whoa they're probably kind of close to midi civil wars, or at least to Ireland-style violence from the 70s and 80s. Now, luckily, we have pretty, you know, we have pretty deep reservoirs here of, uh, despite all the kind of violence, I think of not going down that direction. So we've gotten away, I would almost say, so far with without, I mean, the gun violence is horrible, the mass shootings, but in terms of the political side of it, we probably haven't seen things get quite as bad as they could. But I very much worry about it. And I, and I think the fetishizing of it is really nuts and, and kind of sick, really. I mean, what are people, when they sending out, I mean, yes, it's a little bit of a joke at first, you know, really shocked the liberals by sending out a Christmas card with all the kids having guns. Ha ha. You know, a lot of people died from guns and not just uh, murders and not, but suicides and accidents. And maybe you don't really, you know, is that really the kind of country we want to, and do we want everyone to just have this attitude of, you know, it's my right, and so I'm just going to do it. Even if it is your right, certainly. This has been a totally standard conservative line forever and a totally correct one. Rights, you know, you don't want to exercise all your rights. They're also responsibilities. A decent society depends on everyone not pushing every right to its absolute limit, you know, and being a jerk about it and being at times you know, dangerous about it and then provoking others to be dangerous and so forth. So, even if you adopt that reading of the Second Amendment, which I don't uh, particularly, you know, it's as a practical matter, it, it, the the kind of, uh, you know, the, the I don't know what the right word for it is, the, uh, you know, uh, sort of exaltation almost of gun ownership and gun shooting and Donald Trump Jr. going on all the ads with candidates firing guns and sometimes with things that sort of represent the other party almost or the other party's legislation. That's very bad for the country. And so I really think it is bad. And, and who knows what if hopefully people look at it and think that's a little crazy and hopefully we get beyond that. And and but I again, I the the radicalism of it in the bad sense of it, the radicalization, the polarization, the intolerance, the the demonization almost of the other side, uh, that, that's all 
part of this, you know, almost fetishization of guns. I'm much more upset about this than I used to be, but I think I'm right to be because I think it has changed a lot. I mean, there's a lot of gun ownership in this country and there was always a kind of the Western and the, you know, man with a gun and self-sufficiency. But it was, I mean, the degree to which that was still premised on a kind of responsibility, being serious about it. They were defending the, their fellow citizens against the bad guys. You had to be trained. You couldn't just, you took, you took your kid out hunting when he was 10 years old, but you were very careful about how you did it, what you taught him and you pressed upon him the importance of safety. Now that seems mostly, you know, that just seems like another age. When I want to, I want to get a few questions in before we leave here in 13 minutes, but I I will just say to your point, uh, what you said about uh, guns and violence connects to another conversation we had earlier today about the dehumanization and calling people groomers and that kind of stuff. We had Rachel Kleinfeld on the program uh, a few months ago, and she said, you know, the clearest way you get to political violence is to dehumanize the other side and think and and, and be fearful that they're coming for your kids, right? That they're coming for you. They're coming for your group. And then the slippery slope to violence is, is uh, it happens pretty quickly, but we'll move on. All right. So Bill, so um, I hate to make you do this, you know, let's put your professor hat back on here, Bill. It's been a while, but, uh, it's good for you, me, yeah. That's, yeah, there you go. So, uh, but you guys have written about this uh, a lot at the bulwarks. So I think you can, you can do a good job before you tell us why you think it's important, what the ramifications are. Tell us first, what is this independent state legislature theory that's being bandied about the Supreme court's going to hear the case. What is the theory and what are the dangers if they rule in favor? I mean, so and I'm not, you know, a constitutional lawyer, and it's, it is somewhat complicated. The the claim basically is the, the, because of certain phrases in the Constitution, and then there are different variations of how radical the argument can get. But basically, it's it tries to make the state legislatures active participants in the selection of the president or in the in the in the choosing of the electors who will cast the electoral votes for the presidency from that state. And the custom and the norm and the law has been here for a century of war, really, that if, you know, if someone gets more votes in Ohio than if A gets more votes in Ohio than B, uh, that the Ohio electors meet in the capital and the electors are, are uh, of the one who got the more votes are become the electors for the Electoral College and they vote for that person. And that's the vote that's recorded and read out loud on January 6th or whatever date it is in early January in the, uh, in, in the capital. And so that's, you know, that's been a pretty good system. It's, it turns out when you look at it closely, it's a little ramshackle. It's sort of a, a lot of different parts of the Constitution came together to make it happen, a little bit of history, but it's worked pretty well. And uh, that's what obviously Trump tried to challenge. And Trump saw there were some weaknesses that were in the guardrails here. And one was that it was unclear. What if the state legislature said, I don't really trust the vote. I think it was wrong. And if I'm going to, we're going to authorize this other set of electors. And what if they even ahead of time pass legislation saying that, or what if they just get together in December and decide it? And that's what Trump tried to get people to do in Michigan and Pennsylvania and, and other states. And that, uh, in a way, that's the call to Georgia would be about that. It, that was to Raffensburger, Secretary of State, but ultimately it would require the state legislature to say, OK, well, then Raffensburger says these votes were, were wrong. So we're going to give the electoral votes of the state to someone else. It's it's anti-democratic. It's, it's just a recipe for true chaos and contested elections. It's not as if the other side's going to take that line down either. So it's very dangerous. I hope the court doesn't go down that path. There are many stopping places they could go to allow state legislatures who do have the right to regulate the elections in their states to some, you know, to a considerable degree. There are places they could go that would, you know, accommodate some reasonable, and I would see legislatures right now decide on early voting, yes or no, voting by mails, are the polls open at six 
Yeah, we're 8 a.m. You know, I mean, there's a ton of stuff they do do. So it's not. So I, I don't know. Anyway, I think it would be a bad, very, it would be dangerous though if the court went full bore into sort of a, 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 a routinizing, normalizing, legitimizing the notion that, you know, the popular vote, well, that's one aspect of how we select a president, but they're, you know, state legislatures have to have some leeway here. That's really opening a door to, to chaos, I think. So we have a question from an anonymous attendee. I'm going to kind of I'm going to kind of combine it with a question that I had. So I, I firmly believe that uh, partisan media is poisoning the American mind. Uh, when you hear these people at these election hearings, the things they're saying, unless you're in that world, they're saying the craziest, you know, Dominion voting and Venezuela is involved and all. And it's just stuff that like, unless you're listening to that, it's like a different language. So the anonymous attendee is asking uh, <clears throat> how, what, what can we do to stop all these illiberal ideologies from being spread and i'll just combine that with mine in terms of like partisan media like what is, i mean i don't i don't think i don't want my enemies i don't want people that i don't agree with in charge of saying the truth is disinformation so i don't want the government necessarily you know being a censorship board but uh i mean what's your opinion on the flooding the zone isn't isn't working as steve bannon said uh the, the pro we have lots of information that's not the problem the problem is people are choosing bad information right so yeah what, what do you say how do we stop this i think the bulwark is trying but uh you're one yeah, of, i mean of it's, many, very, right? it's a free country so it's hard to stop lying it's hard to stop disinformation it's hard to stop rabble rousing and we've had a, a lot of it throughout american history i kind of do come back but i'm i'm totally i agree very much sincerely that it's a big problem uh, fox news i think is in a way a particular problem because of its it's you know impressive it's a major news network it's not just some guys clipping and pasting something and emailing you something so it has credibility and they're telling you this is happening in the schools and you're going to go to the school board meeting and you're going to stand up and we had the phenomenon in virginia near where i live people showing up at school board meetings and screaming at the school board members and they had elected or you know worked for people they had elected about stuff that was allegedly happening in the schools that wasn't happening in the schools or mostly wasn't happening in the schools it was widely exaggerated well right now they'd I... seen it on fox i mean so we don't we don't even it's it's totally not reality it's not and this is in their community they could find out you know they could ask some kid what's going on <laughs> they could ask parents they could go visit the teacher probably it's not impossible to get to have conversations with public school employees you know uh they could raise these things in a civil way and ask for a report in a month of what's happening but no total hysteria and demagoguery and mean-spiritedness and 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 attacking people and so that that is bad i but so some of it's inevitable it's hard to stop social media has made it worse probably the cocooning of media you know uh siloing of media has made it worse i still come back to trump in this respect though i think it, a lot of this can happen and it can be bad and it can be hard to beat back and the mainstream media, the people who care about facts are sort of under pressure. But having a president, having a president, not even just some senators or members of Congress, just routinely repeating this, exaggerating it, promoting it, and an ex-president then doing so who's the leader of one of the two major parties, not the leader like in Europe of one of eight parties, not the governor like in the 60s or 70s of one state, or not a senator from one state, Joe McCarthy, with, a, you know, with some support, but still not the whole party that makes it so much worse I, I i so i come back i think if one defeated trump if the republican party returned to something more approximating a civil and civilized and uh you know liberal democratic in the sense of liberal democracy pro-liberal democracy party um and the democrats hold you know sort of where they are mostly i'd say 
I, I think some of the media stuff would subside on its own. I just think it, it wouldn't quite have the credibility if it's some. Then you're back in Father Coughlin, and those guys did a lot of damage, obviously, and people scream, screaming on talk on radio and people inciting. And look, you can incite riots, you can get people killed. I don't mean to minimize any of that, but I think having one party sort of not quite repeating all of it, but, but repeating enough of it, or enough people in that party repeating enough of it. And then that people in that party getting elected by being favorites of the most radical the voices, not just on Fox News, but on the other cable networks and on social media and so forth. That has a real corrosive effect uh, or magnifying effect for the intolerance and the extremism that the media by itself wouldn't quite have. Well, I want to make one final pitch and then I'll let you make a final pitch for the bulwark. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned earlier uh, changing your views over time, that that's a useful thing. It's actually a, a thing we should we should value and we should give people credit for. Adam Grant wrote a book, psychologist Adam Grant wrote a book called Think Again, I think is the book's title. And one of his quotes in there is something like, you know, if you don't look back right now at yourself a year ago and think, gosh, how stupid I was a year ago, how little I knew about the world, you had a bad year, right? And so one of the things that I love about center right and center left political commentary sites that are arguing in good faith like yours right they're not going to lie they're not going to distort they're going to present the facts as they are and then talk about what should we what should we do about those facts right uh is that none of us know everything even if you are a democrat or a republican like you have blind spots and you need to you need to be challenged right and i think the bulwark challenges people um, to think about things in a complex and nuanced ways. You guys are not out there, you know, fire breathing tribalists. Um, so make one last pitch for uh, the conservative students and for the liberal students who, well, because, why? Well, I, I, I'll make an honest pitch. You read a wide variety of things. I always tried when I was editing the Weekly Standard Conservative Magazine to read the nation and your Republican liberal publications. I taught political philosophy and I taught Plato and I taught Marx and I taught Nietzsche and I taught Locke, you know, and I think that's important, really. You need to think about these. I'd also say, just you know kind of against what we were saying in a way that sticking to views that you have and that you believe are right even if they become unpopular is also a good thing to do so i'm not in favor of just looking around and if everyone else is changing their mind you should do it too no that's not always right maybe you should think maybe these people have seen something you know i mean they're not, you know if, if, they're, if they're maybe you you should make makes you think maybe i'm wrong maybe i i kind of had too narrow a view of this but so I, yeah no i really think um i mean education is very important and is in a way the ultimate solution to a lot of these problems is just in the short term people don't suddenly get educated and again when you have a political system that fosters not education or not even the kind of humility and modesty and seriousness about learning more about certain things or testing things being empirical uh but but when it just fosters a kind of demonizing the the uh, opponent as an enemy and fostering anxieties and hatreds and resentments that's the dangerous situation we're in. So it's a challenge. Look, I think young people today have a great, in a way, it's exciting, I guess you could say. You know, if you take over a country and it's going fine, you keep it going, right? And that's important. It's important to do that. Keep the train on the tracks, keep keep it going at the right speed and so forth. If you come of age and the country is really in trouble, in a way, you have more of a, you have much more of a challenge. It's daunting. It can be it could really be bad, honestly, but it could also, it's a great achievement then if you can help right the ship. So I do think young people today have uh, great challenges, but really great, great opportunities and great responsibilities ahead of them. Well, I want to thank uh, Scott Donald for running the IT for tonight. Thank you so much, Scott. <clears throat> My students, Madison and Allison, uh, assistants here at Connors and the Utterly Moderate podcast. Thank you so much for helping with this. And of course, Bill, 
uh, big admirer of your intellect. Uh, you challenge me and challenge your readers and, and the folks at the Bulwark do. So uh, many, many thanks. We're in your debt for joining us tonight. Thank you so no, much. I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Yeah. All right. Welcome, everything. Thank you, everybody. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.